Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Chris Burrow. Uh, we're at uh, the Toomey, Oregon in uh, Dundee. It's March 4th, 2021. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Who doesn't want to talk about themselves for an hour? <laughs> First question for you, most important, why wine? Um, you know, wine was just kind of this thing that um, kind of satisfied an endless curiosity. I think a lot of people who find themselves doing this are, uh, are inherently curious people. Uh, I would count myself among those. Um, and no matter which avenue you go down, uh, you kind of just find yourself turning corners that you didn't expect. And there's always something interesting and cool around the corner and, uh, you know, just keeps you interested the mm-hmm. entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've not, I've not uh, studied any other topic that's been just as fascinating. Uh, from wine growing, you know, as we sit here kind of at the top of Prince Hill Vineyard, um, all the way to everything that we do in the cellar, um, wine sales, drinking wine from around the world. Uh, there's just always some place that, uh, that you can um, explore further. Um, in addition to that, uh, food has been always uh, an important part of my, my family culture. Um, we gathered around food, uh, whether it was like a, ch- uh, a cookout after church or whatever. Um, you know, some of my favorite memories and some of my fondest memories and some of my clearest memories are around people gathering, uh, particularly around food. Um, wine wasn't a huge part of that. My parents, I'm the oldest of five kids, so my parents, you know, weren't throwing around a bunch of money uh, chasing fine uh, white burgundies and such. Um, but, you know, when there was... Uh, some form of alcohol involved it kind of got people to loosen up a little bit uh got them to uh, you know just removed a layer of um, you know pretense and allowed people to really kind of be themselves and -hmm. and i always love that um i've i've found people kind of endlessly fascinating uh and endlessly frustrating um but you know i've always just kind of uh, always kind of loved observing people i guess and kind of observing people when they're in these modes where they're having a good time and and feeling like you know you don't have to to really focus on your problems at this particular moment so uh, wine kind of uh kind of you know was an an elevation i guess of that in some ways so um, that's kind of the the condensed answer of of why wine You talked about food. I know that was the kind of a big part of your career early on. Tell me about kind of pre-wine life, uh, upbringing, education, and, and kind of your first first work. Yeah. Um, wow. I don't even know where to start there. Uh, so I was born in Long Beach, California. Strong Beach is my cousin's father. Um, and my parents moved up here when I was, uh, I think, between three and four. So I'm as native as a uh, native and Oregonian as you can be without actually being a native, I guess. So. Um, was raised in and around Portland, uh, but mostly uh, up near Mount Hood. Um, and so those are kind of like my earliest memories of just kind of, um, you know, early Oregon uh, in the 80s and 90s, kind of what Portland was back then versus what it is now and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, I worked in a series of just kind of random jobs. My first job was at 12. My mom's uh, super into horses, so I uh, learned how to clean horse stalls. Um, that was... Uh, 
I'm glad I'm not still doing that. It's uh, very tough work and it's not exactly glamorous. Um, but yeah, I was never afraid of hard work. And so, um, you know, just kind of tried to make myself useful and earn a little bit of money throughout kind of uh, my early teen years and into my 20s. And found myself in Colorado uh, at one point, uh, which is where I met my wife. Um, she will become a big part of the story as well. Um, and, you know, I graduated high school. I knew that I wanted to work. Uh, it's the end of the 90s. Um, and just trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. There, there you know, at the time, and I, I assume it's still the same, there's just a, a huge amount of pressure to make a decision on what you want to do for the rest of your life, uh, which is a huge thing for a 19-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid to uh, try to wrap their head around. So um, I worked for a couple of uh, construction jobs, uh, worked in a tile warehouse, super exciting stuff. Uh, I know way more about tiles still than, than is reasonable for any human being. Um, and, uh, you know, about the time that I met uh, Andrea, my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, she was like, you know, she had her stuff together because she's that person who always has their stuff together and we all kind of glom onto those people. Um, and she was just like, you know, you really like cooking, you really like, you know, uh, you know, your love language is, is food and, and uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of pushed me in that direction and kind of uh, told me that, or, you know, suggested that I go to culinary school. And I was like, you know what, that's actually not a horrible idea. So I went to culinary school. And so we moved back to Portland. Uh, she was my fiance at the time. Um, and just kind of bootstrapped ourselves through that. Um, and I thought that once I was done, I would try to run restaurant groups. And I just, you know, it's, it was fascinating to me. It sounded interesting. Um, and so it was just, you know, that was my path. And towards the end of my schooling, uh, John Eliason, who had the Labette label for years, uh, was one of my professors uh, <laughs> of wine studies. And so, you know, the more and more I was uh, just kind of got involved in his class and really enjoyed what we were doing and what we were kind of exploring, um, the more I was like, I don't know that I want to work in restaurants. I was working at a restaurant at the time. And, you know, it's it's a brutal industry, and it will beat you up and chew you, you know, chew you up and spit you out. And I was like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. And so I just uh, decided to take kind of a, you know, not to overuse overuse the word pivot uh, in, in 2021, uh, but kind of just you know took a different direction, uh, and kind of decided that I would go into either craft brewing or winemaking. And um, so I applied for a few jobs at a couple breweries, uh, and then I applied for a job as a tasting room host at uh, Domain Druin. And Ashley Bell hired me there, and I worked in the tasting room there basically for, um, uh, got from April of 2006 until harvest that year. And that was kind of my, my foot in the door, and they, you know, and, and I haven't been able to get out since, so I'm still here. <laughs> So from you, you're at that point, you're thinking brewing, brewing or winemaking or brewing or brewery or winery work. Um, tell me at, at the time, did you have a preference? Did you, did you, did you hope one would work out or, over the other? Um, I think I had a preference for wine only because it seemed a little bit more glamorous and romantic. Um, it was just kind of, 
you know, the idea of being outside, being in vineyards, you know, I, it's why people come out to wine country and, and taste, you know, I kind of got sucked in, uh, in a lot of the same ways. So it felt like it would be, you know, not to compare the two, not to, to make it a, a class issue necessarily, but it seemed like something that would be a little bit more, you know, I could, you know, put my chin up a little bit more, mm-hmm. so, uh, to not, to be completely blunt about it. Mm-hmm. So, Tell me about that that first experience. Something about getting to DDO and, and, and what that was like for you. Um, it was a brave new world. It was uh, you know the the Truen family came here in the '80s and purchased that property and kind of was the first big um, you know kind of the first big news in Oregon uh, that really kind of uh, legitimized Oregon, I guess, in some ways. Um, and so it, I remember you know just working in the taste room and talking to people who led these fascinating lives and you know made you know gobs and gobs of money and uh, were buying cases and cases of wine and you just kind of see this whole different world and having grown up you know out in the woods near Mount Hood you know it was a very very different experience so you kind of learn quickly to just you know you know my parents were always big on knowing who you are and not letting other people tell you who you are uh, as a result having a very strong sense of self so it was easy to kind of keep my some of those circumstances, um, but I learned an incredible amount uh, while I was there. That's really where I cut my teeth, and um, you know, um, it was just it was you know, I'll probably use this term a lot. Uh, it was like drinking from a fire hose. Every every major shift in my career that I've made has been drinking like a uh, drinking from a fire hose. So. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was, you know, a little bit of culture shock, to be honest. So, um, but more or less, I just, you know, try to keep my head down and, and do the job and, uh, and make sure that, uh, you know, I didn't say anything embarrassing in front of the Druins most of the time. So <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of my big deal. Um, and so I worked in the tasting room for a bit and then, uh, you know, harvest was coming up. Um, I had kind of made mention to Aaron and Ashley that if they had a spot for me, I would love to stick around, but at the same time was looking at, um, other opportunities and other places to work and so I applied for a, an internship at ERAF um, that will you know uh, come in later as well um, and uh, you know got hired on for ERAF and I was supposed to go work there uh, in 2006 and um, I think you know it was probably August uh, or uh, it was getting pretty late in the summer of uh, 2006 and Aaron came to me and was like hey we need one more person do you want to stick around? And I was like, well, yeah, I've made friends here. I've, I've you know, enjoyed working here. Um, and uh, so I called ERAF and was just like, I'm sorry, uh, I'm not gonna be able to work with you guys, but um, you know, uh, DDO is gonna keep me on and it's just an easier transition overall. Um, and they were, you know, not super thrilled because it was pretty late, but uh, they kind of rolled with it. And, you know, that was kind of my, you know, how I ended up going in from uh, uh, from uh, hospitality into production. <laughs> so before we get into that, I'm curious about sort of the, your, your education process. Why, obviously, you, you, you approached it from a food background, which, which many people do, and you learned about it through culinary school. Tell me about the education process in sort of formalized education with culinary school and then sort of getting into DDO and learning on the fly. What, 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 what was your learning process like, and, and how much did you have to learn? 
Um, you know, in, you know, the theory part is easy. It all sounds like, oh, you just take these grapes and you put them in a tank and then you put them in barrels and then you put it in a bottle and, you know, it's all right there. <laughs> um, the educate, the formal education uh, in the wine studies class was, you know, it was a little bit of production stuff, but it was mostly just uh, exploring different regions and different wine styles, new world versus old world. You know, the simple stuff, white versus red versus rosé uh, versus sparkling, um, and so on and so forth. And it was very, I don't want to say it was romanticized, but it was very much driven towards folks who were going to be in restaurants. And the way you sell wine in restaurants is quite different than, you know, if I have a group of consumers come up here and they want to see, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, so it was... I had a, a broad idea of what to expect, um, but I also kind of, it was funny because I thought that, you know, when we sat down with the Druins during harvest lunches and stuff like that, we'd be busting out all these awesome burgundies and like we'd just be drinking amazing wines and amazing food. And I was kind of shocked by how interested they were, the Druins, uh, about what was going on here. And so we drank a lot of just Oregon wines and just tasted around, you know, wines from Shehalem and Adelsheim and, uh, you know, uh, just all over the place. And they were always just very fascinated about what was going on here. And that was kind of, uh, that was interesting as well. It was just kind of like, you know, we drank the awesome Burgundies, but not very often. And, you know, the majority of the time we were just drinking normal, regular, you know, quote unquote, everyday wines. Mm -hmm. And, um, and just kind of, you know, uh, getting a, you know, it gave me a broader sense of, you know, this thing isn't entirely, you know, uh, uh, bow ties and, and, you know, fancy cars and stuff like that. There's, there's some realness and there's some just kind of cool, uh, energy where people are just like, let's just see what's out there mm -hmm. and let's just, you know, kind of bring this da this thing down a level and not make it so intimidating and stupid for everybody. And, uh, that was really refreshing. And, you know, we, you, you kind of got a real uh, dose of realness, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, which was, uh, I think, a big part of what kind of kept me in, a, mm -hmm. in, the, in the long term, I guess. What was your first impression of the wine itself? What was your first impression of, of Oregon wine and, and of what DDO was making and what you were tasting from around the valley, around the, around the area? Oh, man. Um, it was a brave new world. It seemed so huge at the time. And I don't know how many wineries, wineries there were in 2006, um, but, I mean, there's close to a 1,000 now, I think, something like that. Um, it seemed massive. Uh, but I had had a, uh, I think it was a 2000, 2003 uh, DDO Lorraine in my class. Um, and that kind of got the ball rolling in some ways. And so that was a reference point at that point. Um, and then just the other stuff that we were tasting around the valley was just kind of like, you know, it was kind of in that, uh, you know, maybe in the, the tail end of the, the Robert Parker stuff where, you know, you know, you're sitting at the table and there's a little bit of trash talking and you're like, oh, this wine over from this person is, you know, 95 points and, uh, you know, we don't care about scores and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so you get these ideas in your head and you start to think, you know, okay, so this is big style. This is, you know, too much oak. This is too little oak. This is, you know, and, and you kind of start to kind of make these delineations between, you know, what you like and what you don't like, I guess, probably more than anything and most importantly. Um, but we 
were drinking wines from, you know, Beaufrere, which was doing very well at the time in terms of, you know, getting the scores and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I thought those wines were cool. And we were drinking wines from Shehalem, which was, you know, I don't know if they were getting scores at the time, but I've always been a big fan of those wines as well. And you just kind of see the, uh, the diversity of what's possible with the Pinot Noir grape in particular and what's possible in Oregon generally. And so there was never a, you know, oh, this is right and this is wrong. Um, you know, early in my career, I thought that I would start to have those those moments mm-hmm. where I was just like, all right, I'm going to, this is, it's all going to be a narrowing from this point forward. And then I'm going to have my dogma and then I'm going to have, you know, all of the right ways to do it. And I think it's actually been completely flipped where it was started very narrow and has just become completely wide open. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, again, it goes back to just being fascinated with what's possible. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly, we all have our preferences and what we like and what we don't like and wines that we prefer and wines we don't prefer. But, you know, at the end of the day, generally the bottles get finished and, you know, you can you can say whatever you want, break it down however you want. But um, the fun part is hanging out with people and having these little debates and, and a little bit of trash talking is never a, never a bad thing. So, uh, yeah, it was just kind of like it was a, a very fast education. But, um, just the, the, the takeaway was just kind of like you know, Oregon's big, um, Pinot Noir is big, um, and there's so many different possibilities. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, just piquing that curiosity constantly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, you're, you're getting set up for your first production job, DDO, uh, Harvest 2006. Uh, tell me about that. Tell me about your first, your first harvest. And, and you mentioned before the kind of the, the, the realness or the togetherness of the industry was something that really brought you in and kept you. So tell me about that, your kind of first impressions of what Harvest was like and... Oh man, uh, harvest, first Harvest is, it was a whirlwind. Um, if I get us, I have to go all the way back there. Uh, we had two interns from Italy, two interns from France, and an, and an intern from Tasmania. Incredibly enough, I'm still connected with most of them uh, via social media and stuff. Um, it was also the year of the World Cup, uh, where I don't follow soccer. Uh, I couldn't have cared less. I probably still don't care as much, but it's a funny story at this point. Um, the Italians and the French had played each other, and there was some sort of headbutting incident, and so all of this came into the cellar, and it was. <laughs> It was fascinating and funny. Like it was, it was mostly good natured, but you could see tempers flaring a little bit. And you're just like, "Wow, this is not, not what I expected." Um, the other thing I didn't fully expect was just like the amount of work. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I, I, I had jobs that were physically strenuous, and those were always my funnest, uh, you know, jobs and things I enjoyed doing. I liked being outside. Um, and so we worked some long hours. I knew absolutely nothing uh, about running a pump, about uh, you know what even starts a ferment aside from yeast, um, which is a huge topic in and of itself as well. Um, but it was just like, again, going back to the fire hose, you're just like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? But you're having a blast. Mm-hmm. I don't think I learned very much my first harvest, to be perfectly honest. I feel like I was just like, throwing FYBs into a, uh, a distemmer and talking trash with the Italians and uh, trying to pity the, the woman that we worked with from Tasmania um, was kind of the oldest one in the group and the one with the most experience. So I just try to, to pick her brain as you had time because Veronique didn't have time. You know, they were, they were busy and trying to make decisions. And so 
you just kind of ask questions and try to figure it out as you go. But the majority of it was just, you know, uh, throwing bins and cleaning and, and, you know, having a beer at the end of the day and really feeling like you earned that beer. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just like, it was fun. It was so much fun. And then, you know, you go home, you take a shower, uh, all of a sudden there's an earwig crawling across your shower and you're like, what the hell did I get myself into? Um, but then you, you know, you wake up the next morning and you're a little sore and I was in my 20s at that point. So it was like, to be a little bit sore felt good. Felt like, you know, felt like uh, sports practice mm-hmm. uh, in some ways. And so it was just kind of like, um, I don't know, it just brought me a lot of joy and just, uh, you know, it was just fun. And mm-hmm. it was like the, to the get the togetherness of the team, uh, you know, all of these things just kind of came together and, and made it just like a super cool thing to do and mm-hmm. super fun. Um, from that point, after the first harvest, it was tough because, um, you know, it wasn't super easy to find a job, particularly in production. And so I started looking uh, overseas. Uh, I wanted to go to New Zealand. At one point, Andrea and I um, thought that we would go live uh, in New Zealand. That was the place we wanted to live overseas, and New Zealand was the place. So I was like, well, if I can get a job working there, um, you know, then we'll, uh, um, you know, it might be a step or a foot in the door there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I applied everywhere. Um, in the meantime, you know, because not sure if, if DDO would be able to keep me around. Um, and turns out they were able to keep me around, but uh, Aaron was very helpful. He had a, a friend down there who I'd sent my resume to unknowingly, uh, who had also worked at Druin. Um, and, uh, you know, the connection was made there and made plans to go to New Zealand. Uh, I missed my first wedding anniversary uh, in New Zealand. I don't know who lets their partner travel halfway around the world uh, uh, trying to figure out if something might work. Uh, this thing, you know, might uh, pan out in the end, but, um, you know, uh, Andrea was very supportive and just was like, you have to do this. And she's like, I'll be home for, you know, two and a half months of it and then I'll fly down and then we can travel around. And she's like, maybe I'll try to set up some interviews for myself. Um, but basically just like, you know, it was full speed ahead at that Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that experience about, uh, about New New Zealand experience? Uh, New Zealand was amazing. Um, I regret that I have not been back since, probably more than anything. Um, it was, uh, I think I learned the most, uh, I think I, I learned a lot more that harvest mm-hmm. because I was able to kind of, I had a, a broad uh, idea of what was going to be required, uh, the amount of work I could, you know, actually, you know, uh, I could actually like uh, uh, pace myself a little bit better and try to understand um, the work that we were doing as opposed to just doing the work. Um, but it was uh, it was an amazing experience. I uh, worked for Highfield Estate. They are uh, at the time they were doing I think we did 700 tons that year, and they were considered fairly boutique for the area. <laughs> and. Um, yeah, I worked with a dude from New York and a kid from France and the two main guys who were there. And uh, we, Jeremy, who I stayed with, we uh, kind of did the night crew thing. And so we were kind of the, the finished processing, cleanup crew, uh, you know, cat management, all that stuff. Um, but it was there I really kind of started to understand um, a little bit more of what uh, what a career would look like mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. Um, in winemaking on the production side, especially. And so, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like 
we did a little bit of picking. We did uh, obviously a bunch of processing. Uh, I got to see a couple of very large facilities. Um, and at the time, I had this idea in my head that you know, small winery good, large winery bad. Um, and it was just kind of funny, um, you know, when we were uh, uh, we would go see these other places, and I would see somebody just doing this all day on a, a must pump or somebody standing in front of a press and I was like oh that's that's no way to live that's, you know, that's that's brutal how are these guys doing that why why would you get into this industry to do that I didn't really get a, a, an appreciation for that kind of stuff until later on but you know saw glimpses of it at least in New Zealand mm-hmm. um, I fell into a fermenter when I was down there uh, it was cold soaking fortunately because uh, I don't think Jeremy would have been able to pull me out of there um, but yeah, it was just kind of, uh, I should probably actually tell that story rather than just making myself sound like a clown. Uh, I, uh, they had this barrel. We had, we, we had to walk from one catwalk down onto a lower catwalk in order to do cat management. It was the end of the night. Uh, I just got done cleaning the press because that's like the one warm place to be if you have hot water. Um, you're just like, I'm just going to like get my, my wits back about me, have a beer in there and, uh, and get warm. And so I was going up to gas a couple tanks that we had processed that day. And so you had to step, uh, from a catwalk onto half a barrel, um, <laughs> and then onto a platform in order to, to do that. And of course, when you cut a barrel in half, uh, around the, uh, the equator, uh, it doesn't always turn out, uh, completely flat. So I stepped on it in a weird way, and it wobbled in a weird way, and my knee gave out in a weird way, and ended up like tossing this CO2 tank, you know, just like, you know, a little, a little guy, uh, and fell, you know, my right side into the fermenter, <laughs> through the top of it, caught myself with my left arm, had this massive bruise across my arm from the edge of the tank, and into basically 15 degrees Celsius or 12 degrees Celsius uh, grape juice. Uh, so I learned then that you always have a pair of clothes, uh, an extra pair of clothes, extra pair of boots, extra shirts, extra everything, uh, at all times, because you will get, you know, you'll fall into a tank if you don't, um, let that be a lesson to you kids. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was a, uh, it was a fun experience. Um, we just kind of, uh, uh, we made a bit of Pinot Noir, got exposed to, a little bit of Riesling, uh, what else did they make down there? A sparkling wine, uh, that was my first time working with sparkling, but just kind of, you know, learned uh, a little bit more of the intricacies and what, again, you know, what it would look like if I continued to pursue mm-hmm. winemaking. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then my wife and I traveled around for a bit. Um, she had a couple job interviews and uh, Andrea is uh, the, the smartest person I know. Um, she was in banking at the time and kind of started seeing some uh, some rumblings about what was to come uh, in terms of the economy. So um, she had a couple interviews down there. It didn't quite pan out. She made some connections. We flew home. Uh, and then, you know, the global financial collapse started to happen in that door effectively. Not with slammed shut necessarily, but um, was definitely... Uh, the plans were put on on hold at that point. So we came back to Oregon and went back to work at, uh, at DDO. So obviously at that point you said you'd, you'd kind of had glimpses of what a career in, in production might look like for you and, and, and you came back to it. So clearly it was something you were interested in at that point. Did you have kind of a, a long-term goal at that point? Did you kind of know where you wanted to go at that point? Uh, oh man, uh, yeah, at that point I was smitten. Um, it was just kind of like, 
if I can figure out a way to do this, um, you know, the pay was horrible, the days were long, um, you know, all the things, but I really just kind of wanted to figure out a way to, to make it happen, but I didn't have any sort of, uh, you know, any sort of clear idea, you know, I, I wanted to be a winemaker, but didn't fully uh, understand what that meant. Um, so I figured I'd just kind of take it step by step mm -hmm. and try to figure it out, try to, to, to make as many contacts as possible and learn as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, in that time, my friend Mark, uh, who was at DDO at the time, moved on to open a wine bar called Press uh, in the, uh, what was the name of the restaurant? Uh, Farm to Fork. Um, down in uh, what is now or what was Babica Hen. It's been three or four things, I guess, since then. Um, he left and was going to open that, and so I knew he'd kind of have access to a lot more winemakers than, than I would just being in the cellar at DDO. And so I just kind of mentioned to him, like, hey, if you hear of anything or hear of anybody who's kind of, uh, you know, interesting and, and might be looking for somebody, let me know, because uh, in order to move up, I'm, I think I'm going to have to move on because you know, DDO is a great place to be and people don't leave there very often. In order to move up, you have to, somebody's gotta go. So, um, he, uh, God, it was like Memorial Day uh, of that year. I think it was 09. Um, I got a call from him. He's like, hey, this, this guy, Tyson Crowley, is gonna come down and he's gonna be pouring wine for us. Um, he's making some pretty cool Chardonnays. You should come check it out. Um, and so I did. Uh, talked to Tyson for a little bit, uh, along with a couple other winemakers who were there. And I gave Tyson my number and I was just like, hey, if you ever need a, an extra set of hands in the cellar, let me know. I, I'm free on weekends, I'll work. Uh, I'll take a vacation time if I need to, to come work with you just to see, you know, a different piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a horrible use of vacation time, but, um, you know, <laughs> it, I did it a couple times. Um, and uh, developed a fast friendship with Tyson. Um, and so started to kind of see what a, you know, DDO was uh, relatively small at the time or medium-sized winery and Crowley was just getting off the ground in a lot of ways. I think he started in 05 and so I think that was like, you know, his fourth year in or something like that. Um, and Tyson had been, you know, around. He'd worked at, uh, at uh, Erath and worked at um, Archery Summit mm -hmm. and I just picked his brain a bunch. Um, and he was kind of the person who, when the job came available at uh, Erath, um, you know, he was the person that I reached out to first. And I was like, you know, what was your experience like there? I know that Sam Michelle owns them now. There might be some differences, but, um, you know, I'll be working in that same facility. Um, and what are your thoughts on that? And he's like, if you have a chance to work in that facility, um, you should do it. Uh, there's, uh, you know, they'll have new equipment and blah, 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 great. Uh, but the facility is just kind of, it's its own thing. Um, and I think I ran into Jerry Murray at a show or something like that and kind of asked him the same thing because I knew he had spent some time there and uh, he said the same thing. They both specifically mentioned the facility and they probably have better equipment now. <laughs> and so I'm just like, all right. So, um, uh, had to tuck tail a little bit with Erath, um, you know, after turning them down for harvest, uh, you know, just kind of told them, you know, what the story was, but also, look, I'm ready to work. I want to, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm ready to do something a little bit different. Um, it was a larger winery, so I didn't fully expect um, what, 
you know, I didn't fully expect kind of what was to come uh, in terms of organization and just how well run everything was uh, despite the facility. Um, but at that point, it was just kind of like, uh, all right, there's this. This is a step towards whatever's way out mm -hmm. there. Whatever, mm -hmm. whatever I'm going to be doing, uh, you know, 20 years from now in this industry, if I'm if I'm lucky enough to stick around. So, took a job there, or took the job there. It was a what was it called? It was a bottling line supervisor or something like that. Something super, super sexy. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you've heard before, like if you can run a bottling line, you will always have a job in this industry because it sucks. Um, but that was my primary job. Um, during the summer, like we bottled uh, about half of the Oregon bottling, the orange label stuff that, uh, that you see everywhere. Um, I ran the night crew there, the three harvests that I was there. That's a shock um, when you go from, you know, we worked four tens, but um, when you go from starting work at seven o'clock in the morning and then they're like, all right, take tomorrow off and then the day after come in at 5 p.m. And that first day is awesome. You're just like running on adrenaline and you're like, all right, we're getting fruit. I've got my crew. They seem like good folks because there's a recession and uh, nobody can get jobs out of college. And so, you know, that was my first once in a lifetime uh, recession. Um, Starting to doubt that we understand what once in a lifetime means. Um, but uh, yeah, I just had some really awesome crews working there and just, you know, again, learned a lot, but it was just, it was more logistical stuff. And that facility is, I could make a transfer from me to you. Um, and if you're blending, you're doing this over the course of obviously multiple tanks. Um, but the way that things were set up, you would have to have like 250, 300 feet of hose in order to make this transfer happen. Um, and then move it on to a different tank later on. Um, and so it was just like, um, you know, you learn to, Learn the basics, number one, and you get, you know, some of the basics of just like logistical stuff. Um, but then you also just kind of learn to deal with the challenges within that and learn that you can only do so much in terms of making things more efficient. Um, and so we basically, um, you know, sometimes the work just becomes the work. And, you know, you put in some long days, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, area that's uncovered. So again, you're learning to, not only do you need another change of clothes, you also need another pair of boots, an entire uh, a set of rain gear, um, and any number of uh, accoutrements uh, to keep yourself warm or cool or dry or, you know, any number of things. So um, it was a fun place to work. The team that I had there was awesome. Um, still friends with a couple of folks there. Gary Horner is one of the single nicest people I think I've ever met in my life, let alone this industry. And he's just, you know, he has his way of doing things. He's a very smart guy. And I just enjoyed kind of watching him work and trying to glean something from, you know, what I'm seeing him do um, in, you know, while I'm trying to also, you know, do the work. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we did all of the higher end wines. We got wine from Prince Hill here. We got wine from... Uh, uh, Leland over towards Oregon City. We got wine, or uh, not wine, we got grapes from all over the place. Um, and so I got just to see another cross section, again, going back to uh, different wines from around the, the valley, but also different grapes from around the valley at this point, because mm -hmm. we were just getting stuff from everywhere, Southern Oregon, um, the other side of the valley, everything. So it was just like this, um, 
again, drinking from a fire hose. Uh, just all this information coming in. Excuse me, learn how to run a bottling line, um, which is, you know, a wild thing. You, learn, you know, you think you fix one problem here, but it only creates another problem over there, and then you fix that problem, now there's a problem here. Meanwhile, you've got a bunch of temp workers who are talking your ear off and asking you what you'd do if you won the lottery, and you're just like, I don't have time for this. Uh, the, the screw capper is acting up. Um, but like just a lot of character building funny stories in running a bottling line uh, that are, you know, wildly frustrating in the moment. But, you know, they kind of, uh, it's the stories now that are, are, you know, some of my favorite where, you know, you know, uh, you, you earn a little bit of street cred doing um, some of that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically just putting your head down and, and being, being willing to do anything. So you said you were at ERAT for, for three three harvests? Uh, three harvests in almost four years. Four years? Yeah, February 2010 to... Yeah, till 2013 sometime. May 2013, something like that. So you got, so, you got, you got the ERAT experience. You got, you got to see the facility, obviously. The, yeah, the, the original Dick ERAT facility. <laughs> um, there was one main barn where like all the older tanks were and then there were a few outbuildings where uh, other tanks were some tanks outside some dry storage um, but all in that that uh, that footprint that uh, that dick built so it's pretty pretty intense um, but it was you know like I said it was uh, you know a lot of character building funny stories um, but that facility will try every bit of your patience but it'll make you better at what you do I think so it was an altogether good experience, I think. So what's next? What happened next? Um, so we were trying to think of the exact timing of this. Um, at one point, Andrea came home with a, a flyer from the Rotary Club uh, regarding a winemaking professional exchange, basically, uh, for a group of Oregon winemakers and uh uh, salespeople to go to Croatia and for a group of Croatians to come to Oregon uh, and kind of just bounce around and, and uh, discuss ideas and and see each other's countries more or less mm-hmm. um, and so I was basically like Andrea's like you should try this again she, I don't know if she's trying to get rid of me or just wants me halfway around the world at various points in our relationship but um, you know encouraged me to basically like all you have to do is write a little essay and go to a little interview and what's what do you have to lose? It's a free trip um, to Croatia and then I can come join you. Um, that might actually be her motivation there. Um, so I wrote an essay, uh, had an interview and then was selected to do that right around the time that Erath or St. Michelle had decided that they were going to transition uh, out of the old facility and into, uh, I think they moved everything down to 12th and Maple. And um, it was, uh, you know, the timing was kind of perfect because we were on our way out at Erath and there was this other opportunity to kind of uh, meet, some, uh, meet some new people and try to figure out what the next step was going to be, but also have a little bit of fun. So uh, together with Wynn Peterson Nedry, uh, Tom Champagne, uh, wins at uh, double zero in RR. She was a, with uh, Shahalem at the time. 
uh, Tom, I think, was with uh, Raptor Ridge at the time, and then Rebecca Bellingham, who was with uh, Art Stewart. The four of us went over there, uh, along with a, uh, a member of the Rotary Club, and just ate and drank our faces off more than anything. Uh, idea exchange, sure. Um, uh, all around Croatia. Uh, so we went, started in uh, Zagreb, went out to Split, all the way down the coast, all the way back up the coast, into the interior of the country, and just really, um, you know, in addition to having a great time, met a lot of really great people who were just kind of like, um, you know, the fall of the, or the, the breakup of, uh, of Yugoslavia didn't happen that long ago, uh, and it's still very real uh, in a lot of the, the minds of the folks uh, out there. Um, and so it was just kind of like, it was jarring in some ways, um, especially on the interior of the country that kind of suffered the worst uh, of the, uh, the wars that happened. Um, you know, there were, there were pockmarked buildings. Uh, we visited a vineyard that they helped clear of landmines or they helped clear the land of landmines uh, and then planted a vineyard there. And they're like, literally, don't go outside the fence. And we're just like, you know, that's a completely foreign concept to, to, to most of us. And so we were just like, you know, it was just a, a, a pretty intense and amazing experience. And again, we had a lot of fun. Um, everywhere you go, they're trying, you know, they make the best of this or make the best of that. Um, stuffing you full of cured meat and wine and, you know, talking trash about their neighbor. You know, it's very, <laughs> very similar to Oregon where you're just like, all these people are just, they're doing kind of the same things we're doing in a slightly different context. And so it was, it was a pretty incredible experience to, uh, number one, be seen fit uh, to be, uh, 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 to represent Oregon in mm -hmm. some small way. Um, but also, you know, the connections that I made, I'm still very good friends with all of those folks. Um, Wynn is one of those people I call when I'm like, hey, I've got a fermenter that's doing this and smells like this. Um, what do you think? Um, but yeah, it was just kind of like, it was just a, a, a one of those points where it re, reinvigorated me and re kind of focused me on like, I, I do still want to do this for a living. Um, so unfortunately, when I got back, we did uh, get laid off at ERATH. I got a severance package and I had basically three months to kind of figure it out. Um, and that was actually the closest that I've come to leaving the industry, not because I wanted to, but because you know, the, the economy hadn't fully come back into its own and I was just trying to figure out, I'm not one to be able to just sit and do nothing. And Andrea's like, she had, she had been laid off from Wells Fargo previously, uh, a few years prior and was able to like have some me time. Uh, she got a severance, was collecting unemployment at the same time. She actually still managed to make more money than I did uh, <laughs> while she was unemployed. Um, and she's like, you should just take this time. She's like, I'm working, we have health insurance, you're gonna be fine. Uh, you should just take this time and, 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 you know, reconnect with yourself and try to figure out what you really wanna do. And um, I did not take that advice because I, I'm dumb. Uh, <laughs> I was just like, I, I gotta do something. So I started applying for jobs everywhere. I applied for, you know, a glass factory, um, you know, I had previous warehouse experience. I'm like, I will do anything for now just to have a paycheck and have something to do. Um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, kind of reaching out to my network. 
which included Tyson Crowley at the time, obviously, uh, and still includes Tyson Crowley. But I, I had lunch with him, and I was just like, hey, dude, um, got laid off. Uh, if you hear of anything, let me know. Tyson's like, I got a little bit of work. You can come hang out and, and clean barrels and stuff, and, and you know, you'll figure it out. You'll be fine. Um, and so I'm trying to think the timeline of this. I think I spent... This is from like May to June or something like it's only like a month and I'm already going nuts and just like <laughs> I can't do this. I can't not work. Um, and I get a call or a text from Tyson. And he's like, hey, uh, my buddy Jim Prosser uh, has JK Carrier Wines. His guy just gave his notice. Uh, I told him to call you. I'm like, cool. I like, you know, I had seen Jim around the valley. Um, I knew that he had built a new winery. Um, I knew that it was closer to home, um, at least that part of the valley. Um, but didn't know a lot about Jim. Uh, knew about the legend of Jim uh, in some regards. Um, and so got a call from Jim, went up and talked to him. Uh, he and I, I think, you know, kind of sized each other up and neither of us was quite sure what to think of the other. Uh, I, think, I think actually my first interview he walked in from out of the vineyard. He's covered in dirt. His hair's everywhere. And I'm like, Tyson, you're going to hear it from me if this guy's a whack job. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, all right. And, you know, he was, he was very earnest. He was just like, here's what I can offer you. Here's, you know, what the, the job is, um, you know, offer in terms of uh, your, your growth and your learning. And... Uh, the thing that stuck with me most, and I, I almost positive he said it, you know, is one of the first things that uh, that he mentioned in terms of uh, when people leave J.K. Carrier, what he wanted uh, wanted to do was kind of slingshot them into their next uh, their next position. He's like, "This is my winery." He made no bones about that. You know, it's my name on the label. Um, you know, you'll learn a lot here. You'll have some fun. We'll drink some beer. Uh, we'll make some good wine. That kind of stuff. But um, I didn't. I wasn't fully prepared for uh, what would become the next five years, and, and some of the best that I spent in the industry. Um, you know, uh, I, I won't say anything nice about anybody because uh, it's just simply because this is being recorded. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, um, I think I started with Jim in August of 2013, uh, so it was late in the season. Um, uh, and it was just kind of like we were off to the races because harvest was about to start. And then the 2013 harvest obviously was kind of wild. So um, it was just me. Actually, it was uh, me and this 19-year-old kid named Silas. Were the inter Silas was our intern that year. The three of us made all the wine that year. Um, I don't remember exactly how much we made, but that was uh, it was fast and furious. We'll put it that way. But... Uh, um, yeah, so working with Jim was just like, I don't think anybody can fully prepare you for that. Uh, he, he was and, and remains one of my favorite people. Uh, he's a tough person to work for and a tough person to work with. Um, he expects you to know your stuff cold uh, and be able to adjust on the fly. And I mean, that's what we did. You never get comfortable. And for me, you know, that's not my my resting state is trying to get comfortable, trying to know my things well enough so that I can kind of not hit cruise control, but kind of just like, you know, all right, I know this. All right. You know, what's the next thing to learn? Uh, and Jim's just like, all right, what are we doing? What are we, what are we messing around with? What are we, uh, are we going to, uh, 
are we gonna mesh on a pull cluster? You know, that's an easy one. Uh, we started doing these kind of wild uh, uh, Sagne ferments separately and then adding the juice back to the, to the uh, fermenters. Um, and just kind of just, you know, just, it was always something different and you never kind of got comfortable in your thinking. And I didn't realize how uh, helpful that would be mm -hmm. kind of just in a general sense because, you know, we have so much uh, or, uh, uh, vintage variation in Oregon, you always, you always have to think on your feet. Uh, and so there's always something coming and you have to be flexible, but you have to know your stuff well enough to, uh, to, to be able to, to, to knock it out of the park if, if the pitch looks good, you know, so to speak. So it was just kind of like uh, endlessly frustrating. Uh, I love Jim to death. Um, I think there was no shortage of times where I could have punched him in the face uh, and probably vice versa, but um, I, I had a blast working there. That was, uh, you know, we were driving tractors. Um, I got all sorts of vineyard experience uh, that I hadn't gotten prior. Um, you know, it was close to home. It was laid back. It was most of the time it was just us two or a third person who would work with us uh, in the vineyard. And um, just, you know, I learned a ton. So it was just kind of like, that was the first, uh, you know, I'd, I'd consider Tyson a mentor as well, but that was kind of the first person that I worked with that I considered a very direct mentor and somebody who uh, um, that you know somebody who I think uh, took my my growth seriously as mm -hmm. well uh, not that other people didn't but you know it just felt like that one-on-one -on -one was uh, what I had been looking for and thought probably should have come earlier in my career but you know I think uh, I had a bit of a sense of entitlement early on uh, that I, I kind of lost uh, over the course of my career and then when I found myself in the position of working at JK Carrier, was just wanting to make uh, as much uh, out of it as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was, uh, it was a ride, <laughs> but uh, no, still, Jim's still a very good friend. Uh, in fact, once things are all back to normal, we'll probably get our tasting group up and going again. But um, yeah, I can't say enough about my time up there. I know, uh, I know, uh, um, you know, it's, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. We can move on to the next question. <laughs> this this, this uh, sparkling water is going straight to my head. <laughs> so you, you had talked about one of the things um, that attracted you to Jim Prosser working with Jim was the, the idea of slingshotting, the idea of like your, your personal growth and then yeah. finding you your next thing. So at what point did it become time to find the next thing and, and how did how did that come, come about? Man, um, it was... I guess it would have been uh, about this time in 2018. Uh, God, it's been three years already. Um, it was, uh, I was starting to feel like, um, you know, that I, I, I had gotten what I wanted to out of the experience and not necessarily that I needed to leave uh, immediately. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but, uh, but just like, I wanted to kind of see what else was out there. And at about that time, I saw an interview, or uh, sorry, an interview, uh, I saw an ad in Wine Business, and I don't think, if I remember correctly, they listed the winery name. Um, sorry, you're good. All right. Um, I don't think they listed the winery name, so I was just like, I had heard about uh, Silver Oak purchasing, you know, at that point, that's how it was kind of uh, uh, in all of our heads. Um, 
Silver Oak purchased Prince Hill Vineyard and I kind of put two and two together thinking that, you know, maybe this is part of the same thing, but uh, it was for an associate winemaker position. Uh, I read the job description. It sounded kind of up my alley, um, plus a few things that I knew, um, you know, were maybe a little bit setting my sights a little bit beyond where I was maybe at. Mm -hmm. But that was a challenge for me. Um, I looked at it as, you know, what what can it hurt? Number one uh, and number two, uh, Kind of see what these guys are up to like you know there's a new there's new blood in oregon um i'm from here you know you're always kind of curious about outsiders there's obviously the you know their oregon can be a little bit insular at times um and so i applied uh and just kind of was like you know let's see what happens and so i got contacted um a few weeks later had a phone interview that went well they reached back out uh, turns out it was Silver Oak and Toomey. Uh, this was going to be part of their Toomey label. Um, and I knew next to nothing about Silver Oak at all, or Silver Oak, and then nothing about uh, Toomey. Um, so it was like uh, uh, really quickly just start researching as much as I could, find out about these guys, and find out about um, you know what the company uh, values are. Um, and Andrea is in process improvement. Uh, she has been since I've, I met her. Um, and one thing that stuck out on their website was this idea that we have yet to make our best bottle of wine. We are constantly looking to improve what we're doing and um, become better at what we do. And that really stuck out for me. And in ways that I didn't quite expect it to, but you know, it, it resonated with uh, um, in our home and then resonated with me personally. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, at that point is when I started to actually get excited about the job. Um, I ended up, the second interview ended up being at a hotel in, uh, in Portland. It was very dimly lit. Uh, I walk into this room, there's uh, four people uh, all up from California and I'm just like, I haven't had a job interview in five years. <laughs> and I was just like, oh man, uh, this is, you know, it's, in, it's intimidating. Obviously Silver Oak has a reputation and uh, it's Napa, it's California, it's Sonoma, it's, it's all these big, big things. And what the hell am I doing here? Um, and the first interview went well enough. And everybody I talked to at that first interview was, was great. They were all very, you know, actually just just people, it turns out. Um, and so the next interview was going to be in uh, in California at the Silver Oak Winery in Oakville. And that was even more intimidating than the the dimly lit hotel room or hotel, the little uh, conference room at the hotel. And so they flew me down. Um, and the Oregon wine industry, uh, as it is, it's small. Uh, we all know each other. You start getting these, uh, the rumor mill starts going and you start kind of knowing who's in the conversation. And, you know, I was in a conversation with people that I have a massive amount of respect for and uh, are people who are friends of mine. And that adds a complicating factor. Um, I'm a fairly competitive person. Um, but I, you know, uh, it was kind of, it was, it was 
it was definitely it was intimidating to say to you know to put it gently mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and wondering how in the hell i'm in this conversation with you know these people who know a lot more than i do who've had a lot more experience and and would be you know amazing at this job um and so flew down to california again had another interview uh brought a wine that i had uh made at jk carrier um from the 2016 vintage you know some young vine fruit uh, that i got for a steal um just for fun and you know the interview went well they liked the wine and um you know, I, I, I think it went well, or obviously it went well, but like, I was just like, the whole time I just feel like I was shaking and like, not fully, again, you know, why am I, how did I get here? Uh, total imposter syndrome. Um, and once the interview ended, I went down to the tasting room and tasted through the Silver Oak lineup. Um, you know, as a, as a Pinot Noir producer, I don't drink a lot of cab. Um, I, you know, uh, when I travel to California now or, or when I could travel, um, you know, I try to drink from the place that I'm at. And so I've been, I've gotten over my fear of Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, left the, the winery feeling pretty good. Um, and then, uh, you know, went and had some oysters with a friend in San Francisco and then flew home. And, you know, again, still thinking like, all right, this, the next phone call I get is going to be the one where they're like, all right, we went with somebody more qualified. Um, the next phone call I got was like, we'd like you to meet us at Prince Hill. We'll take a quick spin around the vineyard, uh, talk about what we're doing up there. Um, and that'll be kind of the next round of interviews. And I'm just like, you guys are going to drag out the torture of, you know, my sleepless nights. And, you know, I, I, I think um, I'm a fairly even killed person. I think uh, most people would say that about me. But like, simply because the stress isn't like showing doesn't mean it's just not like uh, building and building. Mm -hmm. And like I said, at that point, I was like, I wanted the job bad. And I'm just like, this is a good move for me. It's going to be uh, challenging, but I think it'll be a good fit overall. Um, so I met those guys up here. We walked the vineyard. Um, and one of, the, the, one of my uh, coworkers now um, um, told me basically, he's like, there was one Thing that you said uh, that kind of sealed the deal for you and you just kind of pointed out something that we had mentioned when we'd walked the vineyard prior and he was like you just honed in on this thing and that really just kind of like brought it into full focus huh. and so you know I was actually funny I was actually uh, I was wildly sick like two days prior and like not, I couldn't get out of bed sick. Um, it wasn't COVID, uh, fortunately, because <laughs> it was 2018. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was coming off of this really crappy flu or something. Um, and I just remember being up here and just being like completely out of breath. Like I swear I exercise and I've been working in, in uh, vineyards and stuff and I'm in shape and I'm not gonna die on you guys. Um, but I was just like, um, you know, just trying to keep it together. And then, you know, at the end of the interview, I just went back home and like passed out. Um, cause I was so just exhausted from just that hour long, uh, interaction. So, um, when I got the phone call from Nate Weiss, uh, who's the VP of, of wine growing, uh, for both companies, um, 
you know, I, I think I let it go to voicemail, actually. I was like, I don't want to hear this firsthand <laughs> that they went with somebody else. Uh, I'll listen to it on voicemail and then I'll call Nate back and, you know, get it, you know, get the, the real the spiel. And uh, clearly that wasn't the call. Um, and so uh, it was, uh, I was excited, obviously. Um, I knew that it was going to be big. I knew it was going to be a big jump for me. Uh, I knew this project was going to be big. Um, but before I did that, I had to uh, go to JK Carrier, go, go talk to Jim and just be like, I'm leaving. And that was tough. Uh, again, like I, I said, I, I really loved working up there. And Jim and Linda and everybody involved in, in JK Carrier uh, treated, me, treated me like family. And so leaving there was, was brutal, mm -hmm. uh, especially when I'm coming into something that I'm you know, just completely unknown. So um, gave my notice. I think I gave Jim about a month. Uh, Andrew and I snuck down to Mexico really quick just to kind of uh, hit the reset button. And then uh, day one here was... Uh, you know, I met the team up here. Um, we had we bounced around for the day at Prince Hill. They introduced me to all the the folks that I'd be working with uh, internally and externally. We had dinner at Ruddick Wood that night, and then they left me alone. <laughs> and you know, all of this noise and uh, hubbub just to get me started, and then all of a sudden, it's like this. And I'm up here by myself, and I'm just like, "Holy shit! Uh, <laughs> what am I doing? Uh, how did I get here?" Um, you know, Dick was still living on the property at the time, and still making wine down in the uh, what he calls the winerette. Uh, I've kept that name; it's never going away. If we build a winery up here, it's going to be called the winerette, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so it was just like. You know, that first day I just walked the vineyard and got a lay, you know, got the lay of the land and and tried not to, you know, completely lose it. So it was uh, it was a really great feeling. It was just kind of one of those things where you're like, this is kind of what I've been working so hard for and, you know, feeling aimless at times. But, um, you know, really kind of uh, felt like I had a direction at that point, mm -hmm. uh, a really kind of clear direction. And um, I could get excited again. Um, not that I wasn't excited before, but excited to be, to be uh, the, the primary person mm -hmm. for a piece of Oregon wine growing history, realistically. You talked about the, as you kind of looked over the job title or the, the, the expectations that it was, that there were some, some stretches for you, some things that were, oh, yeah. were out of your comfort zone. Tell me what the, what you understood your job to be, what the, what the project was, what the goals were at that time, and, and kind of how you, how you attacked it uh, starting on day two, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, fortunately, like Nate's a very organized person, which was very helpful. Um, he kind of, you know, before I even started, sent me with a list um, of things that they were thinking about and projects that they were um, wanting to get done while they were up here, uh, or at least in the short term. Um, gave me a whole onboarding schedule, like we're going to have you down in California for a week and you'll start meeting the team um, and all that stuff. Um, and just kind of gave me an outline of what the first few months would look like. Um, so that was huge. Um, 
the stretch part of it was just kind of like, you know, uh, it's a, a well-known winery. They have some very smart people working for them, obviously, um, and trying to figure out how I fit into that mm -hmm. and and if I fit into that and if I'm just going to completely embarrass myself or if they're going to like me and keep me around. Um, so, uh, you know, the first few weeks were basically me up here getting my office set up, um, uh, getting to know the property, running into Dick every once in a while and trying to, to not sound dumb in front of him. Um, Cause that guy does not forget anything. He, uh, when I told him I worked for Jim, he was like, oh yeah, Jim Prosser, he overflowed some barrels in my cellar. I was like, Jim's told that same story in the exact same way that you did, except Jim was panicked and thought he was gonna get fired. Um, so mine like a steel trap and so you're just like, I don't want to sound like a moron in front of Dick Erath and have him call David Duncan and tell him that the guy that they hired is an idiot. And so basically just like, you know, trying to glean a little bit of information from Dick and then, uh, you know, go to California and again, drinking from a fire hose, get to know the whole team down there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd kind of watched some of the company videos and stuff like that and, you know, knew some of the, uh, the rumors about how uh, the team down there operated and how people you know, really loved working for the company and working for the Duncans. And I'm an inherent cynic, like, or, or you know, that's uh, cynicism is my resting state. Um, and so I'm just like, yeah, 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 sounds great, sounds good. Um, you guys like the company you work for, that's cool. I'm, you know, I'm gonna do it my way. And if I fit into that, great. Um, and th there is no BS in how much people love working for this company. It's it's so wild to me still like i you know my team members yeah there's there's so many wildly intelligent people that i work with it's intimidating number one but it's also just like super exciting because you're just like i have a ton of people i can learn from and and uh and uh and pick their brains um but i also have a, a, a an expertise in oregon that i can share with those guys if they ever get a cold rainy vintage in california anywhere i'm i'm their guy <laughs> but um i was blown away with just how friendly everybody was how welcoming everybody was uh how well organized everything was and you know got completely just sucked into it as well it's mm -hmm. You know the winemaking team has become friends you know they're not just uh just co-workers like we call each other and harass each other and, and shoot the shit uh constantly it's 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 a lot of fun so I, I was not prepared for that either um i feel like i've wandered way away from your question but it's all good i'm, I'm sort of curious with what, like what what the early expectations were what did they want to do with this project oh um so i should i should mention that uh david duncan and, and dick erath met a few times and kind of discussed it before the, the purchase actually happened. And they actually found that they aligned on a lot of, uh, of the same things in terms of uh, sustainable farming and, um, uh, uh, and just making sure that we uh, didn't just come up here or they didn't just come up here and, all right, we're ripping everything out and we're gonna build a monstrosity on your hill. Um, and I think Dick knew that, um, you know, he wasn't going to be able to farm this the way that he had been able to since, you know, he uh, these vines behind me were planted in uh, 83. And I think he knew that, uh, you know, he's he's in his 80s and you want to pass on uh, 
you know, he lived up here. This was kind of the crown jewel of his, his properties, I think. And he wanted to make sure it was going to uh, somebody who would care for it like he did. Which isn't to say that nothing was going to change. Um, you know, whether you pass on uh, a winery to your kids or, um, or you get purchased or whatever, there's going to be changes that you, you don't love, but that's life. Mm -hmm. um, so you kind of try to make those decisions the best way you know how. And um, I think Dick felt that he could entrust the Duncans with um, this piece of it. So the main idea um, was to come up here and just understand it. Um, what's here, uh, what, uh, what's worked for Dick, what hasn't worked for Dick. And that overlap uh, that I had with him, uh, he made wine uh, in 2018 down in the winerette. And so just, you know, again, again, picking his brain and just being like, you know, down in block four, there's all sorts of stuff down there. What, you know, what were you thinking? What was the, the process there? And he's just like, you know, some of it was funny. He was just like, oh, we're just screwing around. We just try to see what would work, what didn't work uh, in terms of trellising styles and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been some redevelopment. Um, you know, one of the things that Dick, uh, I think, got very, very right is this Clone 95, um, the, the lost clone, so to speak. Um, and so we've planted a bunch more of that. Um, but just, uh, uh, you know, the plan up here is to, uh, you know, part of the reason they hired somebody from Oregon is to make sure that we honor what is here and, um, and kind of just make sure that it's, uh, um, you know, the way that, however we move forward with this, that it's it's something that makes sense for Oregon, something that makes sense for Prince Hill, and then hopefully we can make some really great wine uh, in the long term as well. So it was just kind of, uh, um, I was amazed with how kind of uh, respectful the whole process was. Um, again, certain things have changed, uh, things will always change. Um, but if you spend 10 minutes talking to Dick about Prince Hill, he, he's a large man. He's, I'm sure he was, you know, back in the day, he was a pretty intimidating uh, force, uh, but he lights up. He, it's, it's hard not to get sucked into his excitement about this hill. So um, I imagine that uh, the way that I got sucked into it is the same way that the rest of my team did. And they're just like, you know, we have to do, we have to make this, you know, we have to, to, to take care of this and, and really kind of uh, uh, continue to tell this story of, of this site. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's been kind of the, the main piece of it. It's been, you know, I don't know exactly, um, I know some of the long-term plans, we'd like to have a winery up here and that kind of stuff, but um, I'm kind of just, you know, I'm still picking up pieces of it day by day and, and learning about it and understanding it better. and. And, you know, I think that's kind of the, the big picture is just to, to make sure that we're not uh, making any fast decisions and that the things that happen up here are, are thoughtful and done well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. You mentioned kind of getting to know the vineyard first, getting to know Prince Hill first. Tell me your impressions of it and, and what you saw that you wanted to work with and what you saw you, that you thought you needed to update. Well, tell me about getting, getting to know it and how, how that process went for you. Yeah, so they had started doing 
uh, a little bit of redevelopment uh, before I started. Uh, and then in 2015, Dick had actually started doing some redevelopment uh, kind of in the areas to the east here. Um, and so I came on and just kind of tried to start understanding what, uh, what the plan was more or less. So uh, we replanted 14 acres, uh, a little bit of Chardonnay, and then a handful of clones of Pinot Noir. Um, in addition to the stuff that Dick did, which was that clone 95. Um, and so it was mostly just uh, working with RP on the development itself and, and collaborating with the team in California to kind of execute the decisions that they had made. And then, you know, I had helped uh, at JK Carrier, we had done some redevelopment. And so I had a little bit of experience um, on how that stuff worked. And, um, I just tried to more or less just understand what the plan was um, in terms of that. And then in, in terms of the existing vineyard, um, it was still trying to just get the lay of the land and um, and just kind of, I don't know, just uh, get out and walk the vines mm -hmm. and understand what's here and what needs to be improved. Um, you know, the vines, you know, they were, they were well cared for, but, um, we made some pruning changes that I think have made uh, the vines a lot more healthy, especially in block three here, which is kind of surrounding us. Um, block four is, you know, there's a lot of stuff down there. There's some really great uh, um, pieces of that. And, you know, again, going back to pruning and, and just making farming adjustments and really just trying to understand, um, you know, what we're doing in terms of cover crop, um, getting away from herbicides, um, um, uh, you know, what the cultivation plans are going to be, mm -hmm. just all of these things. And um, I don't even fully understand every one of them, which is why I kind of lean on uh, my team in California and then my friends in, in, in the industry. Um, but just, uh, you know, more or less just trying to understand what the plan is, uh, execute the plan, and then be a part of, um, uh, of whatever the next moves are and, mm -hmm. and make my voice heard as it's, uh, as it's necessary and shut up when it's necessary. Sometimes that's important. Um, but, you know, hopefully uh, if and when we do more redevelopment up here, we can do it in a similar way uh, as to these other blocks. And um, I don't know, just make really great decisions uh, in terms of, of, you know, how best to utilize this hillside. So your 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 path here had a lot of different a lot of different stops, a lot of different sizes, a lot of different styles of wine, a lot of different people you're working with. Oh, yeah. I'm curious about developing your own kind of philosophies along the way. Like what what it, when it came time to vineyard management, when it came to winemaking, what did you how did you kind of develop that philosophy over the years, and, and how would you describe it now? If, if if given your given all the freedom, <laughs> how do you how do you manage vines? How do you make wine? Um. Yeah, I mean, you take pieces and parts away from everybody that you work with. Um, the Druins, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you learn that wine is food there. Um, and it's not always, it doesn't always have to be this uh, elevated, uh, elegant affair. Um, at Erath, it became more technical. I was there 2010, 2011, pretty tough vintages. Um, and you just kind of learn that sometimes you have to do things that, um, not bad things by any stretch of the imagination, but things that, you know, in an ideal world, 
you wouldn't have to do. You start, you know, you start heavily, you know, more heavily sorting uh, your yields tank. Uh, you know, just all sorts of challenges uh, present themselves, and you have to make the, the best decisions that you can. Mm -hmm. um, J.K. Carrier, kind of the same thing, but there was some farming tossed in there. Um, you know, Jim's going in more of a uh, definitely organic uh, route, which I have a lot of respect for. It's definitely tougher. Um, it's not. Um, it's not for the weary. If you want to farm organically, it's more expensive and it's way more labor intensive. Um, and then the winemaking, um, you know, the wines are, uh, Jim also worked at Erath and worked at uh, DDO. So, you know, it's an amalgam of those places as well, plus his own philosophy. And so I, I don't tend to be a very dogmatic person. Uh, I like to think that uh, kind of in the vein of, of Prosser is, you know, know your stuff, know the basics. Know how to clean. Uh, know that sanitation is important and stuff like that. Make clean wines uh, that aren't uh, biological or microbiological nightmares. Um, and uh, um, you know, farm in a way that's not detrimental to the planet, uh, or you know, at the very least, your hillside there. And it's 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 you know, I. I I think that I'm still remaining fairly flexible. Again, going back to, I had a very, early on in my career, I thought I would have everything just super dialed in 15 years in. And at this point, I'm still learning and I'm still taking these things in. Um, I, in fact, I just signed up for a, a, a winemaking chemistry class because it was a place that I felt like I needed some additional work. So it's never too late to, to, to pick up more information, but, you know, I, I again, I'm not a dogmatic person. I want to, I want to do the things that are best for both the the, the vineyard, the the planet, the people who farm this stuff. Um, you know, who often get overlooked sometimes. Um, all of these things kind of uh, uh, come together and and and, and become uh, a part of how this all works. And so, my biggest thing is, I want to make wines that are delicious. Um, I want to make wines that uh, are long-lived. Um, I want to farm in a way that is responsible. I think that that is something that's constantly adjusting um, as we learn better. You know what soil health looks like. Um, you know we can get away from herbicides all we want, but we still have to deal with weeds. How do we do that without just burning a bunch of dinosaur bones? Um, you know, these things are questions that I just constantly have and constantly mull over. And so I don't know that I have any sort of like nailed down philosophy. It's just kind of like, well, here are the basics. We know the basics. Now we have to be flexible. You know, what is it? Bruce Lee was like, be water, be like water or something like that. <laughs> um, you know, just try to, to, to not get so wound up in my own ego and my own uh, worldview that I can't be flexible mm -hmm. and try to figure things out as I go. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't really answer your question, but um, you know, it's just kind of a um, still trying to figure it out while also kind of uh, uh, being uh, cognizant of of what I've learned on the on the way. So we talked before the interview that we, we, that we would talk about 2020, I promised you we would. So let's talk about 2020 a little bit. Yes. A uh, couple different crises in 2020. Let's start with, start with the pandemic. Obviously it came first. Um, yeah. Tell us how it affected you, your wine, your wine life, your work, and, and also how you saw it affect the industry. 
Whew, wow. Um, 2020, uh, it's, you know, I, I don't want to get too far out from your question, but I, th I don't think that we're going to fully understand the impact of, um, of kind of this moment in human history for a very long time. Uh, what we went through or are going through as a, a planet, as a, as a species, I think, is insane in a lot of ways. Um, you know, in, in, in some ways it kind of gets hard to talk about wine, and which seems so frivolous in uh, a time where, you know, we have, there's half a million people who've died from this thing. And, uh, and for me personally, um, I imagine that some folks will relate. Um, it was just this compounding series of, as you said, just stressors. And then, by the way, every way that you normally deal with stress, you can't have that. You can't go to the gym. You can't travel. You can't see your family. Um, all those things that, you know, make life uh, tolerable when it gets tough. Um, and so, uh, for me personally, there's, you know, the virus hits. Um, trying to think. Uh, yeah, the virus, oh, it was uh, the virus kind of, uh, you know, at first it just seemed like, okay, we all just like hunker down for a couple weeks, this thing will be over. And then it's just like new information comes out, misinformation comes out, disinformation comes out, reinformation comes out. And it's just, it starts to just build and build and build. And by the way, um, you know, my trips to California, I was down there about once a month. Uh, uh, you know, that gets, uh, uh, stopped, um, you know, and then I'm working from home. Um, and like, you know, half of the reason I love this job is cause I get to come up here and I get to be here. Um, so that goes away except for once a week. Um, and then again, more compounding, you know, you've got, uh, uh, videos surfacing online of people flipping out because they have to wear masks and throwing produce and shoe boxes at kids working in retail situations. Uh, uh, we all watched a video of a man who looks like he could be a member of my family, uh, have his neck kneeled on for 10 minutes. And it's just all of these things. And then the reaction to that. And it was just like, you know, uh, again, I, I tend to be a fairly even keeled person, but like it was, it put me in a really, really dark place. Um, and that it was, that was tough, uh, to just kind of at one point, just kind of, uh, uh, um, as you're kind of thinking about how you're processing things, it just was just like, I need to figure out a way to feel better because this is not. I'm not going to survive this if I don't. Um, and so when I was able to start coming back up here, that became my respite. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my wife and I obviously leaned on each other and I didn't have to become a grade school teacher overnight either, which, you know, was helpful. <laughs> it's just like, um, yeah. but coming up here and just getting this perspective, you know, humans have been making wine for thousands of years. There have been world wars in there, there have been civil wars, there have been pandemics, there have been localized uh, diseases and such. Entire kingdoms and, and, and empires have risen and fallen um, and fermented beverages have been there for all of it. And so 
it kind of gave me perspective in some ways when Dick was planting this vineyard in the eighties, you know, and the, the vineyards that were planted, uh, you know, by David Light and those guys in the sixties and seventies, you know, they, I don't know if they were thinking about this. Uh, I mean, not the, the pandemic and stuff, but like, I don't know if they were thinking about, um, you know, what the next 50, 60 years looked like and what the industry would look like in that time. But we do this and we, we think about these things and, uh, and we, we plant these vineyards and they're, they're you know, semi-permanent structures. And the wines that we create from those are these snapshots into, um, into that and in, into the, the, the place and the time that they were created. And that's, you know, that's how we've done that, you know, as people who have, have, who have fermented things for a living, you know, have done that for thousands of years. And so it helped me kind of just be like, all right, you know, this sucks. This is tough. You don't get to do the things you like. Um, you're miserable. Um, but I could come up here and at least be like, people have survived things like this before, um, you know, in some weird way, it somehow made things make sense. Mm -hmm. it made me feel like, you know, there are longer term plans. Uh, 2020 is gonna end, the pandemic at some point will end, hopefully not with the ending of our species, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it just kind of became that, uh, that piece that kind of kept me sane in some ways. That breeze is getting chilly. <laughs> Whoever watches this is going to be like, Chris has been shaking. He's nervous the whole time. <laughs> it's like, no, I've got a 35 degree breeze going down my back. Very, very pleasant. Very pleasant little breeze. So, so you get, you get through all that, you get, you get it this summer and then, then the other part of 2020 hits and, and you deal with, you're dealing with fires at harvest. So yeah. tell me about harvest 2020 and, and how you handled it. <laughs> um, I was at Wynn Peterson Nedry's house. Uh, I can't remember if it was for a baby shower. We were, gather we were gathering out on her back deck. Um, obviously due, due to uh, COVID, we were just kind of like trying to see your friends, but see them in a safe and responsible way. Um, and the wind kicked up and it was just like, there's smoke in the air. We're just like, let's, that's not good, but you know, how bad could it be? <laughs> um, and so we just like basically, you know, didn't think much of it, uh, but as kind of the, the afternoon rolled on and the days following and we kind of started to see just how intense the smoke was gonna be, um, obviously we got, I think it's an industry just got very, nervous um you know what does this mean um how you know how are the how bad is it going to be how badly are the grapes going to be affected uh unfortunately uh or unfortunately depending on how you look at it uh my team in california had been through this a few times and so um you know they made a couple trips up here and we just kind of tried to Number one, see what was in front of us um, and then start making plans on how to deal with it. And, you know, uh, we had also had a kind of a poor fruit set, so yields are going to be down anyway. And so how do we make the best wine with the small amount of grapes that we have given the circumstances? And, you know, fortunately, we were able to make some early picking decisions and really just kind of uh, 
um, or not make early picking decisions. We picked, um, you know, kind of in the early days of the smoke and those wines uh, are seemingly free and clear. Um, and we're, you know, we're gonna make a very, very small amount of Pinot Noir as a result. But it was just kind of like, you know, leaning in on their experience and trying to understand like, you know, uh, um, what have you guys done in years past? What are the technologies available? Are we just gonna have to absolutely destroy these wines in order to make something drinkable? And they're like, this sucks. We're dealing with the same thing in California. We'll get through it. We will make some wine. It will be good. There'll be a lot less of it. And that was kind of our focus. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, let's do the best that we can given the circumstances. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was tough. We had to make a lot of really tough decisions in terms of what fruit we're bringing in, uh, both from our site and from other sites and made some phone calls that you don't want to have to make in your career. But it just, you know, in the end, uh, I'm glad that we made some wine honestly, because I don't want to, I don't want to let 2020 win in some way. You know, you want, uh, when people drink these wines, whenever that is, I want to, you know, make sure that we have that snapshot mm -hmm. of, you know, what was a very stressful and wild year. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to do something. And, and so we're, we're actually taking a kind of a deep dive into those wines right now um, and getting ready to start blending trials. So um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be challenging, but at the same time, like um, I'm excited about the little bit that we'll actually get to make. So, mm -hmm. um, and the rest of the team is as well. We've, we put together some preliminary blends and, and, and folks are happy. So. Um, so tell me about the, the future for yourself and, and for the project here. What do, you, what do you see for yourself as you look ahead? What do you see for, for Toomey here as you look ahead? Um, yeah, a lot of that stuff is still pretty up in the air. What I do know is that uh, the Duncans and the entire team in general are very, very excited about Oregon and excited to be here. Uh, they're excited about the, the possibilities of what Prince Hill has to offer, but also like are there other sites that we should be looking at as well? Um, if should they become available? Mm -hmm. um, I know that they want to build something up here in terms of a winery. Um, that's exciting. Um, and so my piece of that is more or less just kind of, you know, taking it day by day. Um, in most ways, not trying to get too excited about what's possible, but um, knowing that they have kind of a piece of that for me and um, that I'm kind of their their main person up here in terms of production and I get to be, you know, I get to be the person who's like, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Mm -hmm. um, in places that I haven't, in, in ways that I haven't necessarily been uh, previously in my career. So that's super exciting. Um, and seeing their excitement makes me excited again as well. Um, again, like, you know, we have these, these little pieces of this, uh, of the industry that uh, makes us excited. Uh, IPNC is always one of those for me. Um, you know, uh, Dick's, uh, Dickie Rath's excitement about this site and then seeing uh, the team come up here and just get excited about Oregon and be excited about what's possible is, mm -hmm. uh, is exciting for me. So honestly, just being a part of that and, and kind of helping in the ways that I can help and, um, you know, remaining flexible and, you know, if they, depending on what they have uh, uh, 
in mind for me. If that works overall in the long term, awesome. Um, if I need to shift my worldview a little bit, great. Um, that part doesn't bother me. Um, what I really want to do more than anything is just make sure that it, we grow up here in a way that respects Oregon um, and you know, kind of add something to the industry rather than trying to be something that's uh, a separate entity altogether. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think a lot of people who come to Oregon uh, do so because of what Oregon is. Um, and, you know, maybe some of those folks become disillusioned if Oregon changes too much because it, 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 it's not what they wanted it to be. Um, and that's, that's just life. Uh, you know, the only constant in life is change and somehow it's the only thing we all know how to complain about. Um, but, you know, I want to make sure that I'm a part of growing this entity up here in a way that, you know, is respectful to Dick and to Prince Hill, but also to the David Letts and, you know, all the other folks who kind of got this thing up and going. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so we could come along and, and add our own stamp to it. So, um, you know, I don't have any super specific answers because I don't know, uh, but I'm, I'm flexible and I'm, I'm excited about um, the possibilities, so. You talked earlier about uh, when, you, when you got into the industry, how much growth you've seen in, in the years since you've been, in the 15 or so years since you've been part of oh, it. Yeah. Tell me, what are, the other, what are the biggest changes you've seen in, in Oregon wine? What's different about it now versus, versus then? And, and where do you see it going? Um, obviously, there's been a lot more investment from outside of Oregon, uh, internationally and uh, uh, from companies within the U.S. Um, you know, some of it uh, is, has happened in ways that has been uh, a little bit scary and a little bit kind of jarring. And I think that um, I think that that outside entities have learned how to approach Oregon, uh, not with kid gloves necessarily, but in a way that isn't so scary uh, for the locals. Like I said, we're, you know, Oregonians are insular people sometimes. Um, and it's been nice to kind of see folks or uh, entities come in and, um, you know, down to the individual level. Mm -hmm. uh, most of my friends in this industry are from other places. And that's exciting. That's, uh, there's new perspectives. There's, there's diversity coming in in that regard, uh, both in terms of, of ethnicity, but also in terms of, uh, of mindsets and things like that. And new technologies and new ways of just looking at kind of the same old thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been kind of the biggest change. Like, you know, in 2006, I don't know how many wineries there were, but, you know, it seems like there's a new one every other week now. Um, and, you know, there are folks who are planting different varietals, getting away from Pinot. Um, you know, it's, there's a long road to get, uh, to knock Pinot off of its uh, throne, but um, I don't think that'll necessarily ever happen. But, um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of people coming here with new ideas and, and fresh perspectives, and I think that's a good thing overall. Mm -hmm. um, what else? Uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, long term, obviously we're looking down the same barrel uh, that the rest of society and the rest of humanity is looking at in terms of, of climate change. Um, you know, 2006 was a hot vintage then. I think most of us would probably kill for 2006 at this point. Because um, it just seems to get warmer and warmer and drier and drier, and that's um, you know that's a little uh, terrifying. But again, um, 
you know, people with new perspectives and people with uh, um, ideas coming in about how we can solve, you know, for some of those issues, we can make better decisions in terms of farming or in terms of uh, packaging and shipping that, you know, don't aren't aren't such an assault on the environment and aren't uh, contributing to these issues. Um, you know, I think is, is a good thing as well. Um, what I would like to see and what I, I found, um, you know, inspiring, uh, I'm a biracial person. Uh, my father's black, my mom's white. Uh, if you're familiar with the Punnett Square on the lower right-hand corner, that's why I look like this. Um, but the, um, the Willamette Valley Wineries Association with their DEBI program and really kind of making sure that you know, Oregon is, is Oregon in terms of demographics and that's, you know, it will change in some ways and in others it won't, but making sure that Oregon is a place where people feel welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, Oregonians are very friendly people. Um, that's part of the reason we all love being here. Um, you know, you shouldn't have to be LeBron James. You should have, you should be able to look like LeBron James without being LeBron James, but feel welcome in Oregon. And I think that, you know, Unfortunately, these conversations are awkward and um, people have to kind of put themselves in a position of vulnerability and that's tough for everybody. Um, but trying to make sure that Oregon is a more inclusive place and I think that that's happening as well. Um, I've, you know, I, like I said, I've looked like this my whole life. I've moved in and out of circles that were primarily white um, and heard some of the things that are said when people think that it's just a bunch of white folks in a room. and. You hear the, the terrible, uh, and then you hear, you know, obviously on the, the, the good side of that, you hear the, uh, um, you know, the people who are willing to stand up to it as well. So there's, there's, you know, there's positive change happening in that regard um, that I didn't see 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. So, um, you know, more women in the industry and in positions that aren't just in the lab or in sales, um, which is, great you know we have to learn you know just because somebody can't lift a barrel over their head doesn't mean they're worthless in a cellar they can you know we can collaborate and make mm -hmm. uh you know make our lives easier like take you know if you and i are working together i'm gonna have strengths and you're gonna have strengths and we're both gonna have weaknesses and we should be able to collaborate and work with each other and uh you know get the job done and make good wine and have a good time doing it and not make each other miserable so um you know, some of that stuff has changed. Um, yeah, those are the big ones mm -hmm. that I that I can think of offhand. So, um, mechanization. Oh, labor is a big one. Um, you know, we all like to point out to the vineyard and say, "That's where this stuff is made." Um, and talk about the folks who are doing the work as you know, kind of the real backbone of the industry. Um, and a lot of times, I think that they're forgotten. And so. Um, just making sure that uh, as we have these conversations about sustainability and moving forward that you know humans and the human cost are uh, calculated in that um i'll stop there that's all i can think about <laughs> just a few old small things there no, just small things we'll just knock it out we'll, we'll have it done by 2022. <laughs> last question for you uh looking back so far from, from where you are now is there a, a favorite moment or a highlight of, of your career so far something you look back on with most oh fondness my God. I don't know how to pull out one moment out of, you know, what has been just uh, an incredible amount of moments uh, that are just amazing. Um, I think there, 
man. I think the thing for me is always going to be when I take something that I helped create and I put it in front of people that I care about. You know, there's, you know, not a lot of people get to um, put something tangible in front of, uh, of people and say, I did that. Um, so I've had thousands of those moments. Um, you know, I sent my dad some wine. He doesn't like, he couldn't care less about, you know, where the grapes came from, how it was made. Um, but you know, just, uh, he posted it to his Facebook and he's just like, you know, excited about it. And it's like, I did, you know, I, I helped bring that about. And there's something that my dad can show his friends or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, or if we have people over for dinner, it's, you know, it's bringing out the things that I helped create and really just kind of um, allowing that to be a piece of, you know, that community in that evening and that, that, that space and time. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, there's thousands of those moments, but every, you know, most of them are all pretty amazing. Um, I guess the, the one that I would have to say, well, it's just because it was a big moment in general, um, but also just a really nice gesture by a good buddy of mine. Um, when Andrew and I bought our first uh, place in 2009, uh, it was just after harvest, and uh, my buddy Andy, who uh, actually just moved to Napa, so that's exciting once we can travel again, uh, brought over a bottle of um, 1991 Cortone Charlemagne from the Hospice de Bone. And, you know, we're, <laughs> we're just like gathered in our kitchen with like a few of our close friends and he brings in this amazing bottle. I think we had maybe four wine glasses between the eight or nine of us. And just kind of, you know, couples would share a glass and then some people who were just, you know, comfortable sharing glasses, um, you know, kind of came together and we just poured this wine, no food, no nothing, um, in this, you know, this massive, you know, for us at the time investment that we had just made and this big moment in our lives. And that was just kind of like, oh yeah, this is why we do this. This is, you know, hopefully when somebody takes a bottle away from, you know, the tasting room here at Prince Hill, that, you know, maybe they're thinking about somebody who's having a big moment like that as well. So, yeah, out of thousands of moments, uh, that's the one I'm going to choose. Um, I'll, maybe I'll regret it when I watch <laughs> this again, but that's the one I'm going to go with. It's a good choice. It's a yeah. good choice. Hard to top that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a good evening. It was one of my favorite evenings. So, so all the questions that I have for you. We're, we've, we've braved the cold and, every, and the wind and the rain out here. I, yeah. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered here today? Not that I can think of. Um, yeah, this was fun. I'm glad to glad that you guys reached out. Um, I you know can't wait to watch this, and I, I will continue to to watch the series in general because it's it's been eye opening to see you know uh, I was talking to Kim Abrahams down at Lingua Franca because I watched her as I was like, all right, Kim, somebody I like. I'll watch I'll watch what she has to say, and uh, it's been interesting to kind of find out about your friends mm -hmm. in some ways, um, find out things you didn't know about them, and and things that we you know. Uh, don't tell each other for whatever reason. Um, so it's been it's been eye-opening and it's been a lot of fun to, to kind of watch this and, and to now be a part of it. So Good. thank you. So yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much for your time, for your hospitality out here today. And of course, we'll sorry you had to hook. freeze, but <laughs> <laughs> all good. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. 
Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.